We continue our study in the book of John, but I'd like to read some Old Testament background here, Leviticus chapter 23, before turning to John chapter 7. We began into John 7 last week, and we saw it was the Feast of Tabernacles. That occasion there continues, and we continue in John 7, but I'd like to read about the Feast of Tabernacles at the outset here from Leviticus 23 at verse 33, reading through verse 44. Leviticus 23, verse 33, giving our attention to God's word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall, not do, you shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, beside the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord." Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, the branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. If you would turn then to John chapter 7. Jesus had gone up to the feast of tabernacles after his brothers had already gone up. He said he wasn't going not going in their way, not going openly at that moment, but he does go up incognito, and then in the middle of the week, Jesus goes in the temple and teaches at verse 14, and then we want to pick it up at verse 32, John 7 at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. 
Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Rather than trying to cover all the verses this morning, I'd like to focus mainly on verses 37 through 39 in that great invitation of Christ. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we gather beneath your word, acknowledging that we need the voice of our living God, the voice of our Lord Jesus. We thank you that it's inscripturated. We thank you that we have the inspired text, but we pray now, Father, that you would illuminate your word to us and our hearts to it, that we would hear and receive our Savior, that he would speak into our lives, giving us faith, repentance, and love for him. In his name we pray, amen. Congregation of Christ, it's a beautiful invitation that Jesus offers here in John 7, 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's a beautiful invitation, but it's a deadly serious invitation. Not all invitations for drinks are equally serious. We know that. People offer us things to drink in their homes, and we turn them down sometimes. I was thinking this past week about a, an incident when I was in college that they invited a very, well, somewhat famous author, poet, performer to come for a kind of fine arts thing. And in the middle of her speech, she's gathered there, everyone's kind of excited. She had delivered a poem at a U.S. presidential inaugural inauguration and so forth. Anyway, it was filled crowds, not only students, but people of the community, dressed up and so forth, that, that a lady near the front of the auditorium broke out in this coughing fit. And so, realizing she wouldn't be able to stop this, she begins to make her way down through the, the row to get to the aisle to get out of the place. And just as she gets to the end of the row and is about to turn her way down the aisle and out of there, the speaker stops, says something like, oh, my poor darling, would you, 
would you like some of my water? And the lady in the midst of her coughing fit begins almost to chuckle, and everyone chuckles because it's so ridiculous. So ridiculous, as if this lady who's already thoroughly embarrassed is going to go to the front upstage and, and take the water from the special guest. It was ridiculous. The speaker was probably doing it to break the tension and to acknowledge the moment. But it wasn't a serious offer, I don't think. How different are the offers you see in places of great distress after a typhoon and there's no clean water source and the Red Cross or some other agency comes in or, or refugees, exiles who you've seen them on, on these dirt paths making their way from their homeland, a few belongings, their children all struggling along there to get out, to find a place and they're brought food, they're brought water. Those, those images of people in shabby clothes, desperate people, and, and the offers made to them are serious offers of a people who desperately need drink to live. What Christ does here in John 7 is not a performance. He doesn't hold up his glass as a bit of performance and, and make a joke. What Christ is doing here about six months away from his crucifixion is deadly serious. Not everyone will see it that way. Self-satisfied will say, no thanks, I don't need it. But those who know their need will come to Christ. Let's look at this invitation. As Christ lifts up his voice and calls the thirsty to himself. I'd like to consider, first of all, this morning the occasion or the situation in which Christ speaks this. And then to look more particularly at the promise being offered. And then finally to consider with you the cost of what it is for Christ to make such an invitation, the occasion of Christ's invitation, the promise of Christ's invitation, and the cost of Christ's invitation. Well, the situation here in which Christ makes this invitation of of drink is a, a context of hostility and festivity. Those two don't always go together. Sometimes they do, right? Hostility and festivity. It is a hostile situation here. The Jews have have all come to Jerusalem for the third of these three annual feasts in which they're called to gather. The the city's filled with people. But we saw last time, even before Jesus came, the tension was there. Jesus, uh, verse 1, was not in in Judea but in Galilee because they knew the Jews sought to kill him. That's verse 1. And so all the people are wondering if he's going to show up. They're debating if he's a good guy, a bad guy. The religious leaders have already made up their mind. They're opposed to him. And there's this sense of great tension. Some, just before our text, I should have read probably verse 31 as well, that some people were saying, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these? And when the Pharisees hear the people saying that, they're beginning to think he might be the Christ. Now they want to arrest him. They send forth men to get him. And that's the context here. The context of hatred, of rejection, of opposition. And you might... You might imagine, as it would be for us, if we knew everyone was out to get us, we're not going to show up there. And if we do that, many of the people we're speaking to are opposed to us. We're not going to be kind and gracious, maybe, to offer them much of anything. But it's, it's in this context of hostility that the Lord Jesus Christ will stand up to freely offer, to offer himself. It doesn't turn away. It doesn't just go through the motions and whisper it and get out of there. 
But he stands up with a loud cry. He calls the thirsty and offers to them water. Now the glory of this cry is all the more apparent, not just by the hostility in which Christ speaks it, but by the festivities in which Christ speaks it. It is, as we said, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a week-long feast. If you read earlier in Leviticus there, it would have read about the other feasts. Remember, there are three annual feasts, the, the first one being the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. And then the third one, the big one, the greatest rejoicing of all, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze, where God's people were particularly summoned to come before the Lord and be glad, rejoice. It was a kind of harvest Thanksgiving, bringing some of the later fruits. But it wasn't just a a Thanksgiving like we planned to celebrate this Thursday. It was a joyful commemoration of the time when God led his people through the wilderness, guiding them and providing for all of their needs. Boys and girls, maybe we noted that a bit last Sunday night, but It was a a special feast in which the boys and girls got to camp, not in tents, but in shelters or booths or tabernacles made out of branches. Sounds kind of fun, doesn't it, for the boys and girls? Moms and dads might not have found it so comfortable, but everyone was excited because God said you're to live in these shelters for the week, remembering I led you through the wilderness. You lived in tents and remembering I provided for your every need. And among all the needs God provided in the wilderness, one that stands out is the need for water. And you remember in Exodus 17 when they came to Rephidim that they grumbled against Moses and against the Lord because they had no water. And God did a glorious thing. God caused water to gush out of a rock. And there in the midst of a desert, and a people who would be threatened by dehydration and death, God out of a rock caused a river to flow. The Feast of Tabernacles celebrated that. All the mercies of God, the water in the desert. In fact, by the time of Jesus, we know from Jewish writings that they had developed a water ceremony that they enacted throughout this week of the Feast of Tabernacles, in which each day they would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and the priest with a golden pitcher would fill up the pitcher with water, and they would, in procession, march back to the temple, to the altar, and there, in the midst of chantings and singings and rejoicings and the priests circling the altar, they would pour that water out. And day after day during the feast, they would do this. And upon their minds and hearts and in their songs would be words like these of Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Or Isaiah 44, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. Or Isaiah 58, verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. It's in this context of these These Jews who were giving thanks, remembering the past, who rejoiced in the God, who would do great things. It was in this context 
that the Lord Jesus spoke his invitation. Maybe it was the very last occasion of the pouring out of the water. We read that Jesus speaks his word, verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast. Day after day, they've poured out the water. Day after day, the water's poured out. And maybe now the water's just been poured out for the last time and they've come to the end of it all. You can imagine how that goes, you know, at, at the end of a church camp or at the end of the, the holidays with relatives. That you come to the last day and this is it. Kind of sinking heart, maybe. We wish it would go on. It's over again. We have to wait till next year. And there in the midst of that, Christ stands up and says, in effect, Is anyone still thirsty? Is anyone not yet satisfied? Come to me and drink and live. Christ is proclaiming that he's the fulfillment of all these feasts. He's the proclaiming the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the fulfillment of everything the water ritual was to look forward to. He is peace with God. He is the forgiveness of sins. He is communion with God. He is life everlasting. Come and drink. Well, let's think about that then. Secondly, the promise, the promise that Jesus is making here. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Streams of living water. There's no, there's no meagerness about it. It's an abundance. It's an overflow. The Old Testament had pictured salvation at times under the figure of water. But sometimes the Old Testament was more explicit. It, it spoke not just of water, but of the Holy Spirit. And John tells us, verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit. Christ was speaking, John says, about the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit and his abundance being promised here, his rich sevenfold energy, the one who, who takes the things of Christ and gives them to us, the Spirit who unites us to Jesus by faith, the, the Spirit who is God, who communes with our spirits. Jesus had already spoken of water in his ministry. Remember the, the Samaritan woman in John 4, the thirsty lady. And she had tried, remember, to quench her thirst a multitude of times. She'd had what, five husbands and now was living with a man. And so she, she couldn't find satisfaction. And her daily trips to the well to get water were a metaphor of her life. That every day again she's trying, every day she's trying, and the water she drinks is never enough. Christ said, you drink it, but you're always thirsty again. But Jesus said, I will give such water that whoever drinks will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Jesus saying, ordinary water quenches for a moment. You can enjoy all the creation blessings of food and family and work and recreation and music and books and all these things, but, but they won't quench your thirst ultimately, eternally. Or you can try the pleasures of sin by perverting God's good gifts and, and, and using sin to try to bring satisfaction. And sin makes the promise of, of satisfaction to us. That's why it's so tempting. It looks good. 
But we find again and again that sin doesn't satisfy. And here is Christ proclaiming that if you are really thirsty, then come to me. I'm not a dry old cistern, cracked and empty. I'm the inexhaustible fountain. You'll find deepest satisfaction. You'll find what you were made for. Because that's really the issue, isn't it? Augustine had it exactly right, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Our souls are thirsty until we're quenched with the, the very life of God, the presence of God, the communion with God. We were made, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And apart from that, we're not satisfied, though, in our sin, we are often quite content. Found a devotional this week, a devotional where the author writes, Many are quite content seemingly to grow up, go to school, then to work, then to marry, then to retire, then to die. Such people are quite happy not to know God. But he says such a life is in God's view a living death. And he points to 1 Timothy 5, 6 where we read that those who indulge are dead while they live. So we live among the walking dead, quite literally. People who are dead while they live. They, they live indulging the flesh, indulging their desires, but, but they're content not to know God. They're already dead. Christ says, if anyone thirsts, and he's challenging us, isn't he? He's, he's asking, is there anyone who thirsts, who really thirsts? Are you satisfied with this? Is this enough for you, these, these rituals, these ceremonies, these family gatherings, these feasts? Or is there anyone who's still thirsty? Far too easily satisfied. Sound of water maybe doesn't sound like much to us today, living in... Oregon during the rainy season, not too worried about water, except maybe the pastor spilling it all over us. I'm being very careful here. But if you're in a dry land, if you're facing dehydration, if you can't find water, your body's screaming at you, then you realize what a gift it is to drink. If we're drinking of the world's fountains, then we're distracted. And we're not aware, are we, of how desperate the need is. It's easy to be satisfied in a superficial way with the things of the world. And yet Christ is saying to us here that outside of me you cannot find this drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, to me. There's nowhere else to go. There's no alternative. There's not some Christ substitute. And you know, it's almost as good as the real thing. There's one Savior in the world. And Jesus, in all of his grace, standing in the midst of a hostile people, says, I am willing. I am willing that you should have me. And he offers himself freely. So we can... As Isaiah said, that we can eat and drink without money, without price. Come, everyone who thirsts, come. Come to the waters. Buy without money and without price. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. 
It's one thing to die of thirst, exiled from your homeland, struggling with your family, trying to get to somewhere, and there's no water to be found, but it is a something else. To be living in a house, to have all kinds of water available, and to die of dehydration. Christ says there's no need to die. There's no need to die. There is a fountain here in your presence, he's saying. Well, he's warning them that if they don't take this seriously, they will miss the opportunity. Soon I'm going to be gone. You will look for me and you will not find me, he says. But this is the day of salvation. Will sinners come? Acknowledging their poverty, will they come? Acknowledging their emptiness. Wherever we have a true thirst for the Lord, we must give thanks and acknowledge it as a gift of his mercy. We, we are not naturally thirsty for Christ. Only the Spirit of God working in us can draw us to him. Or if today we have been drinking from the mud puddles of the world, and, and as, as we're hearing the word this morning, we're saying, I see it. I'm not, I'm not pursuing Christ as I ought. I'm not seeking the Lord Jesus. It's a Savior here who calls us and who will receive us. And we're to believe on him. To believe on him. And to come. And he will satisfy us. Streams of living water. Running water. Rivers of water. Satisfied. For eternity. I've gotten to know over the past year or two a minister, also serving as a mission seminary professor, but he just published his sort of testimony in the uh, big Christian magazine, Christianity Today. But he tells his story. It's entitled, actually, a long title. I was a disenchanted deadhead who found Christ on a Greyhound bus. And he tells the story how his... Home was messed up. His father deserted them when he was 12 years old. He got into drugs. He moved to the beach, got bored at the beach, enrolled in college, dropped out of college. Then him and his brother decided they'd follow the Grateful Dead, the American rock band around the country. So that's what they did for a while. He, he writes, We meandered for about a year, winding up in Northern California. Life resembled a countercultural version of the movie uh, Groundhog Day, wake up, follow the music, find people to party with, pass out, go to bed, then do it all over again. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore, so bored with all of this, bored with life, tired of wandering around aimlessly. He tells his family he's going to get on a Greyhound bus and go back to North Carolina. And his sister, who had just, just become a Christianer, began to read the Bible, gave him her Bible. He took it reluctantly because he had nothing to read on the bus. And so after three days of strumming his guitar on the bus, he finally picks up the Bible, begins to read. And he says, many people get offended by being told they are sinners. I was not. As I read the gospel story, it was painfully obvious that I had mastered nearly every form of sin under the sun. I was deeply convicted. In some ways, I felt more lost than ever. All my earthly idols, drugs, sex, the grateful dead were leaving me empty and dissatisfied, and here I sat coming to grips with my real problem in life, which had nothing to do with finding a high I couldn't come down from. I had offended the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. The weight of my sins crushed me. But then he also saw the good news, the Savior who washes clean, 
the Christ who gives life. Dramatic moment in the life of this man. But it's actually the same moment that must occur in every life, though it doesn't occur the same way. There must be a coming to the Lord Jesus, a drinking of the fountain, an acknowledgement of thirst, a confession of sin, a desperate cry to Jesus. There must be a heart that says, life is not found in me, and it's not found in the things of the world. Lord Jesus, I come to you. But finally this morning, Though it's free for us, what's the cost to Jesus? He offers us this abundance of living water, but what's the cost for him? John says in verse 39, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus Christ, Jesus, was not yet glorified. Doesn't mean the Spirit didn't exist yet. The Spirit is eternal God. Doesn't even mean that the Spirit was not yet given to believers to work in their hearts, because every person saved in the Old Testament was saved by the work of the Holy Spirit. But John is saying that the Spirit is not yet poured out on Pentecost as the Spirit of the ascended Christ yet. That moment in redemptive history hasn't come. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. When you think of glorified, you think of, right, he exalted, ascended to heaven, took the throne. He was glorified. But in John's gospel, it's the cross of Jesus that's often the point, or at least part of the point of being glorified. Christ will be lifted up on a cross. He begins his reign on a Roman cross. And so... The Spirit will not be given until Christ suffers and dies. And yes, rises again and ascends to heaven. The cost of this water Christ would give us is discovered as we see Christ hanging on a cross and crying out, I thirst, right? We have a substitute who takes our place beneath the covenant curse of God. And Christ becomes so thirsty in order to quench our thirst. Now, there's a well-known interpretive difficulty in verse 39, or uh, verse 38, rather, when we read that out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, and people are puzzled, out of whose heart will flow rivers of living water? Depends how you punctuate the text. Is it out of the heart of the believer now will flow this water? And then Jesus is saying, like he said to the Samaritan woman, that this, this fountain will bubble up from within you. Or is the text saying that out of Christ will flow rivers of living water? Well, in the end, no matter how you take it, the both are true, right? And before the water can flow forth from us, it has to come from Christ. wonder if the Jews pondered what happened in Exodus 17 when God told Moses to strike the rock. People come grumbling against Moses, and Moses says, why are you testing the Lord? After all, he's done for you. He brings you out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He's cared for you. And the people want to put God on trial. 
They want to put God on trial for mistreating them, for abusing them. They accuse God of crimes. Moses says, what are you doing? Moses says to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? And the Lord says, go on before the people. And take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it that my people may drink. Very interesting, isn't it? The people deserve to be struck. That's what should happen to all these grumbling Israelites. They should be struck. And God tells Moses, I'm going to stand on the rock. And you strike the rock as if to say, you strike me. I, in the place of the criminals. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the people of Israel, they all drank of that same spiritual drink, for they drank of the rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus Christ took our place. We grumblers, complainers, rebblers, we should be struck. We're thirsty because we threw away the good water in the garden. And Christ comes to the cross. And he says, I'll take their place. And Father, the blows of your justice will strike me. That out of me may flow forth. Rivers of life. You know, it's interesting that I think it's only in John's gospel that we're given the detail. That as the spear was pressed into the side of Jesus, that out of him flowed water and blood. Perhaps John calling us to remember that it's only from the crucified Jesus that the blood of cleansing and forgiveness comes. And it's only from the crucified Jesus that the water of life, the Holy Spirit, comes. We begin to see why it's offensive to sin. When we choose the mud puddles of the world over the waters that Jesus offers, we belittle his sacrifice and we insult the Savior. When we drink of the things of the world and say, this is good enough for me. I'm having a good time. No, thank you. Don't need anything from you, Jesus. It insults the Son of God who took on our nature and who died of thirst upon the cross. Forsaken. Cast out of fellowship with God so that we could be brought in. Commemoration going on in John 7 was supposed to be both a backward-looking, a giving of thanks for the wilderness provisions, but also a looking ahead when the promises of Isaiah and all the prophets of waters, of gardens, of spirit would be fulfilled. And now Jesus stands up with a loud voice. And he announces the moment has come. All those who have discovered that all the rituals and all the laws and all the sin of this world isn't enough. 
Here I am, Christ says, the Messiah, the messianic age has come. Come, come and drink. So brothers and sisters, I say to you again, it's a deadly serious invitation. There's no take it or leave it here. Christ stepping on the stage, doing something no one had done before at a Feast of Tabernacles was not part of the performance. It wasn't a trick to break the tension. It wasn't a half-mint offer. Christ on the way to the cross here is deadly serious. If you thirst, come to me. If you don't thirst, plead for the grace to thirst and come to me. May we find in Christ this morning and all the days of our life the overflowing fountain of life, the forgiveness of all of our sins, peace, eternal peace with God, the communion of God's fellowship with us, and the everlasting joy and satisfaction that alone can satisfy our hearts. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this Savior. Oh, Father, we long to know him more and to know the truths of which he speaks. We feel so often that we only scratch the surface in our reading of your word and in our own experience of the Christ. And Father, we thirst for that day when everything that Christ has told here will be known in its fullness. Forgive us, Lord, we pray, for playing around with lesser things and for failing to thirst more deeply for communion with God through Jesus Christ. And thank you, Heavenly Father, for teaching us true thirst, so that we come here on this Lord's Day to seek the one in whom there is life. We thank you for our Savior who gave himself for us, so we may live forever with you. We pray, Lord, for a lost world, for many who so who still pass Jesus by. We pray you'd awaken hearts, that you'd work conversion, that you'd grant the grace of regeneration, and that you'd use your church to preach the good news. Hear our prayer. Be glorified in your Christ and in his people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.